If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to the book of Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 3, and we will be looking at verses 14 through 21. In Ephesians 3, 14, the first verse of of our passage, Paul picks up a a phrase uh, that he used in verse 1 of this same chapter. We saw two weeks ago that intending to pray in response to what he had just said in chapter 2, Paul begins chapter 3 with these words. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. But that introductory phrase caused him to digress into an explanation of his unique calling to proclaim the mystery of the gospel and why the Ephesians did not, to be, did not need to be ashamed or lose heart over the suffering that he was facing on their behalf. And so now, having sufficiently explained these things, he's now ready to pick back up his, his train of thought. Uh, as we've done before, maybe we can imagine Paul dictating this letter to a scribe who may be a friend or a a co-laborer in the gospel, maybe even Tychicus, who's the one that delivered this letter. And so maybe Paul uh, has said all of the words up till verse 13, and then he stops and says, okay, where was I? (laughs) Uh, And Tychicus would reply, "Uh, for this reason. And then Paul would say, oh yeah, that's where I was. For this reason. And then following those words, we find one of the great prayers of the New Testament. The reason for Paul's prayer is rooted in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. That's what that for this reason phrase tells us. And there, in those verses, we saw the truth, not only that, that, that not only does the blood of Jesus draw us near to God, but it also draws us near to all of God's children. And for those of us who are in Christ, there's nothing that can separate us from one another. No division that can be made based on some external factor. Because being in Christ unites us in a way that causes all other reasons to separate, to fade to the background. This corporate identity as God's people, God's family, and God's temple is then supposed to take the place of deep importance that it should in our life together as a church. Who we are as the body of Christ and those to whom the mystery of the gospel has been revealed is to overwhelm our hearts in a way that affects our entire lives and our life together. However, knowing what should be happening in our lives, namely this unity, knowing what should be happening in our lives as individuals and as a body of Christ and actually doing it are two separate things. We all know this. You might know that you need to eat healthier, but knowing and doing are two very different things, aren't they? You might understand really in a deep way how an airplane works. You might even know how the controls function, but knowing those things and flying an airplane are two very different things. So how can we move from knowing who we should be as the people of God to actually living as God's people, expressing the supernatural unity that Christ has purchased for us? The short answer to that question is one word, prayer. And the longer answer is our big idea for today. It's this. If we long for the unity Christ has purchased, we must pray. If we long for this unity that Christ has purchased and that Paul has described for us, 
if we long for the unity that Christ has purchased, we must pray. We might be tempted to look at this prayer in verses 14 through 21 and, and apply it simply to our individual lives. And there are certainly things that we can learn about how we pray for our own souls in private. We might also think about ways that we can grow to pray for other people. And that's a great lesson too. But we need to remember that Paul is praying for this reason. He is praying that the supernatural reality of the church's new unity in Christ would become a tangible reality in Ephesus. And he tells us that if we've caught this vision of the, the beauty of the mystery of the gospel, of people being united across all lines of division, if we've caught the beauty of that mystery, and if we long for that unity that Christ has purchased, then we have to pray. And Paul tells us how to pray. We might imagine that we should simply pray that, that God would bring about this unity. But Paul actually gets us to think a little bit more deeply about how and, and what we should pray for, for this unity to become a reality. He gets at the heart of how we need to change and how we need to grow for this supernatural natural reality to take place in the heart of the, the church. So praying in these ways doesn't mean that we don't work for the unity of the gospel that Christ has purchased. But it reminds us something. It reminds us that there's a supernatural nature to the unity that we are seeking after as a church. There's something divine about this thing that's happening in the church. Something that is different and deeper than any other unity in the world. Something that only God can do. Therefore, if we long for the unity that Christ has purchased, we must pray. My hope is that we're inspired towards deeper prayer as we look at this passage of Scripture. Deeper prayer in general, but specifically deeper prayer about the unity of the church across all potential dividing lines. We often, in the words of Don Whitney in a book that many of us read, we often end up praying the same old things about the same old things. But God's Word gives us some new and glorious things to pray about this gospel reality of unity that get us beyond just saying God, would you bring unity to our church? Gets us a little bit deeper, and I'm, I'm excited to see uh, how we can get into this. So hear these words from Ephesians 3, uh, 14 through 21, and maybe we can all whisper in our hearts the prayer of the disciples. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Hear these words of Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason, I, Paul, bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.
we'll look at these verses in three parts. Uh, first, the introduction to Paul's prayer. Second, the content of Paul's prayer. And then finally, the foundation of Paul's prayer. First, verses 14 through 15 show us the introduction to Paul's prayer. Paul lets us know uh, that he is speaking about how he prays for the church by these words. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees. Kneeling in prayer was probably not actually the most common posture for prayer in Paul's day. It would seem that standing was probably much more typical. Um, the act of kneeling, therefore, indicates a sense of earnestness and, and an intensity regarding this prayer of Paul. This is not a casual request, but it's a deep longing that drives Paul to his knees. We're reminded that, that we're not disembodied spirits, that our physical bodies and our immaterial souls are uniquely linked in this life. We would do well to think about how we pray, our posture of prayer. For some reason, we are surprised, you and me both, when we sit in our recliners and end up, end up falling asleep <laughs> while we're seeking the Lord. That shouldn't be surprising. Maybe our, our lack of earnestness and our lack of focus in prayer has some of its roots simply in the position of our bodies. Could a step forward in, in your prayer life and my prayer life simply be that we decide to stand or we decide to kneel as we pray? Paul says he, that he bows his knees before the Father from whom every family on heaven and on earth is named. A couple of commentaries that I read argued that a better translation might be from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. Well, we might remember back in chapter 2, verse 19, that the church was described as members of the, the household of God, the, the family of God. And Paul is praying for the unity of the church. And as he's doing that, he's praying to the one who is the father of this diverse family, this whole family, the one who is the father of all those who have trusted in Christ, both in heaven and on earth. He appeals to the one who is gathering all of his children in Christ. Calvin writes this, there is but one family which ought to be reckoned, both in heaven and on earth, both among angels and among men, if we belong to the body of Christ. For outside of him, there is nothing but dispersion. What an interesting way to say it. Outside of Christ. In Christ, there's unity. But outside of him, there's nothing but dispersion. So we see Paul kneeling in prayer and praying for the whole family of God. From this introduction, we can move quickly into verses 16 through 19 and find the content of Paul's prayer. The content of Paul's prayer. If you've been with us in this study, then you remember, remember that Paul offered another prayer or another prayer report at the end of chapter 1. The focus there was on knowledge, and we took time to, to see that the kind of knowledge that Paul was praying for the Ephesians went beyond simple intellectual knowledge. Maybe you remember that, that this is a spiritual knowledge that affected their, their minds and their hearts and their wills. And as Paul prays here, he seems to have this same kind of mind, heart, will, knowledge in mind again. Besides knowledge, we also see him praying for strength and for power, and none of what he is saying and none of what he is praying for is superficial or shallow. It's all really deep stuff. He's asking for the Ephesians to be changed deep in their inner being, in their souls, in their hearts. And so too, we must ask God to change us deeply if we're going to know and express the unity that he's held out for us in the gospel. 
We can't simply pray, unify us, O God. We have to pray, change us into your image, O God. Make us look more like you, O Christ, so that we can be unified. We'll break down the content of Paul's prayer into three, requ- three requests. Some people identify four, but uh, the commentator S.M. Bow was helpful pointing out there's three so that phrases that seem to organize Paul's requests really well. So let's state the first one like this. God, give us power to be strengthened in our inner being. God, give us power to be strengthened in our inner being. Uh, my hope, each of these requests is hopefully a re- it's one that we can pray and then expand on. But note also that the, the pronoun is, is us. We're praying together. This is a corporate prayer. God, give us power to be strengthened in our inner being. Right away, we see the depth of what we must ask for. And it's a strength that goes down to our inner being and down to our hearts Paul uses two phrases here, one regarding the Spirit and the other focusing on Christ, and they both seem to be communicating the same request, these requests for the Spirit's presence in our inner being and Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. Both communicate a desire for the enduring, strengthening power of God's presence abiding in us. Now, this doesn't mean that the Spirit of Christ ever leaves a true child of God. Uh, we, we are reminded of the difference between being indwelt by the Spirit, which has to do with his presence, and the filling of the Spirit, which has to do with his influence, we might say. The idea behind the word dwell is one of, permanent re- of a permanent resident rather than a temporary lodger. Our family is trying to make some plans to visit some out-of-state friends this summer. And our hope is to save money that we'll crash in their basements for a night or two, eat around their tables for a few meals, and then we'll move on. (laughs) And eventually we'll get back to our own house and our own beds and eat around our own table. But with that in mind, note that this prayer is that Christ and his spirit would not be occasional guests in our hearts, but that they would be permanent residents who have an everyday influence over how we live our lives. And their abiding presence are to have the effect of strengthening us in our inner being. They're to to give us power to live and walk in ways that please the Lord, specifically in regard to this unity with one another. As you read this prayer, if you're concerned that God the Father has been left out of this equation, then Paul shows himself again to be very Trinitarian in his theology because the source of this strengthening power is the riches of God's glory. The Father is not specifically mentioned, but it would seem to follow that it is from the Father that we receive the gift of the strengthening power of the presence of the Spirit and the gift of the Son that's given to us as individuals and as a church. Paul loves this idea of riches, doesn't he? He keeps saying it. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 7, we're told of the riches of God's grace. In one eighteen, Paul prays that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. God is said to be rich in mercy in chapter 2, verse 4. And in the future, God will show us the immeasurable riches of his grace, chapter 2, verse 7. Paul's message of the mystery of the gospel in, in three eight is said to be about the immeasurable riches of Christ. And it's out of these limitless riches that God has blessed us. 
Sam Walton is the founder of Walmart, which made him a very wealthy man. Do you know who else is really wealthy? His kids. <laughs> All of his children. Brothers and sisters, we are poor. <laughs> And we are needy. In fact, on our own and in our sin, we have absolutely nothing. But guess what? Our Father is rich. And not only that, He's generous. He loves to give. He's so generous that out of the riches of His glory, you know what He's given us? His Spirit. He's given us His Spirit to strengthen our inner being. You know what else He's given us? He's given us His Son to live in our hearts. Catch the profound depth of what, of what is happening here. The entire Trinity is working together to give us the power to display God's glory in the world through the supernatural unity that his blood has purchased for us. The whole Trinity is working so that we, as the church, would be unified and show forth God's glory in this world. And it would seem that what God's power is doing in us is rooting and grounding us in love. Look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you would be rooted and grounded in love. Paul uses two metaphors here. John Stott says one is botanical and the other is architectural. <laughs> Uh, both have to do with structure and support, though. Uh, we, we're to think about a tree towering above the ground that finds its stability in the deep roots that it has. Or we might think about a building, which is a metaphor that Paul has already used for the church. And a key to the growth and strength of a building is what? A solid foundation that goes down deep. So what is the root system that will give us, as God's people, the ability to grow into the display of God's glory that we are supposed to be? What is the foundation that's going to keep us firm in the difficulties that come from being united across all the lines that might divide us? What kind of soil and bricks do God's Spirit and Christ himself provide to give us the power that we need to be strengthened in our inner being? The answer is love. Love is where we are rooted and grounded. Through the riches of his glory, God strengthens our inner being and Christ himself dwells in our hearts so that our roots will grow deeper and deeper into love. The love of God for us seen in Christ. With that in mind, Paul's second request comes as no surprise. His second request is, God, give us the strength to comprehend the love of Christ. God, give us the strength to comprehend the love of Christ. If we're going to be rooted and grounded in love, we need to understand it. We have to know it deep in our very souls. Strength shows up again, and this is a strength of our minds and our hearts to grasp, not by ourselves, but with all the saints, the love of God. The love spoken of in a, a couple different ways. One is, is that we would know the dimensions of God's love, and the other is that we would know this love that surpasses knowledge. 
So Paul speaks first in terms of measurements. It's as if he's saying, how massive is God's love? How wide is it? What is, what is the, its height and its depth? It's like he wants us to walk around in God's love in the hopes that we might get a handle on just how huge it is. You could travel. You might have time to get there. You could travel to Asheville, North Carolina, and you could visit the Biltmore Estate, which is the, the largest privately owned house in the United States. Anyone been to Biltmore? Yep, I knew some of you had, had gone. It's the largest privately owned house in the United States, and you could go in there, and you could walk around the 179,000 square feet of floor space. That's a big house. And you could try to just take in how big and how grand that house is. Or if you wanted to take it a step further, you could, you could go to Mumbai, and you could hopefully be invited into the 400,000 square foot Antilla private residence, and you could walk around and explore the 27-story skyscraper home that, is, that has three helipads, a 168-car garage, a ballroom, nine high-speed elevators, a 50-seat theater, terrace gardens, swimming pool, spa, health center, a temple, and a snow room that spits out snowflakes from the walls. <laughs> if that's not enough, you could, you could go and find yourself inside, and I don't know how to say this, but the Istana Nurul Iman, the largest residential palace in the world and the largest single-family residence ever built. And you could walk through, guess how many square feet this thing is? Over 2 million square feet. It has 178... One, uh, 100, 1,000, come on, 1,788 rooms, which includes 257 bathrooms, a banquet hall that can be expanded to accommodate up to 5,000 guests, a 110-car garage, so a little less, but five swimming pools, 564 chandeliers, 51,000 light bulbs, 44 stairwells, and 18 elevators, again, across 2 million square feet. Now, I can tell you all that. You, I've given you lots of statistics about these houses, right? Their dimensions. But until you actually visit them and maybe even live in them and experience them, you can't fathom how big they are. You, you can't, we can't wrap our minds around it just with numbers alone. And this, I think, seems to be akin to what Paul is praying for us, that, that by the miracle of God's Spirit in us, we would be able to live our lives walking through the halls of God's love, finding more and more just how deep and how wide and how high his love is for us to know it, not just in our heads with some sort of numbers, but in our hearts and deep in our souls that we would be able to comprehend how much God loves us in Christ. And yet... And yet he tells us that this love that God has for us is beyond our knowledge. It's possible that you, you could become familiar with all 1,788 rooms in the palace that I mentioned. But here's the, the reality that Paul's telling us. We will never fully grasp the love of God for us. We will never fully grasp it. And we will never even come close apart from God's Spirit helping us in response to our prayers that he might strengthen us to comprehend the love of God in Christ. Do you know the love of God for you? 
And if you're not sure, maybe you and I can both ask our hearts this question. When was the last time that I prayed? When was the last time I prayed for myself and for my church that I would be able to comprehend the greatness of God's love for me? Is that a prayer that we pray for ourselves and for one another? God, help me to know how great your love is for me. The inability to comprehend God's love fully is not a reason to give up on seeking to understand it, though. It's actually an encouragement to keep going deeper because it's a reminder that if if we think that we've gone as far as we can in exploring the home of God's love, there's another door to open up. There's a There's another chandelier to look at, or there's another swimming pool that we haven't found, or we might open the door and, oh my goodness, there's a room that has spit snowflakes out the wall. (laughs) I mean, there's limitless rooms in the house of God's love. And as we seek the Lord in prayer, and as we search the scriptures and speak to one another, we will find that, that his love for us in Christ always goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Now, Remember, though, remember why Paul is praying this for us. Why is he praying this This for this reason? It's because as we become more and more aware of God's love for us in Christ, then we're going to grow to love the whole family of God in all of its diversity. One of the key strategies for dealing with division in the church or for dealing with the ugliness of racism or classism or sexism or anything else that that, that we would pray, that, that would divide us, is that we would pray to know the love of God in a greater way. Because what Paul's telling us is that it's in knowing the fathomless dimensions of God's love for us in Christ that we will be able to love others. God's love for us empowers us to love others. The more that Christ lives in us and the more we're at home in the palace of his love, the more we will find ourselves rejoicing in the beautiful diversity of the family of God that we are a part of. Think about those that you care about the most. What do you want them to know about you? When it comes down to it, I think we could all probably say this. The thing that I want the people I care about most to know is how much I love them. We want them to know a lot of things, but if if I think about my kids or my wife or my parents or even you as a church, I would want you to know how much I love you. And so too, God longs for us to know his love for us. And so when we say, God, would you help us to know your love? Isn't that a prayer that any good father would answer? Isn't that a prayer that, that, that God would go to great lengths to help us to understand? So God, give us power to be strengthened in our, in our being. God, give us strength to comprehend the love of Christ. And the third request, God, fill us with your presence. God, fill us with your presence. This is probably the most difficult phrase of Paul's prayer to understand. It's that last one there in verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And yet, though it's difficult, I think with a little effort, it's going to shine in all of its beauty. And I actually think that meditating on this phrase was maybe my favorite part about preparing for this sermon. The the context is, again, helpful, okay? So do a little context work with me. We could go back to to Paul's other prayer. Note how Paul's other prayer in chapter 1 ends, verses 
22 and 23 of chapter 1. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So did you see how Paul ended this prayer? He ends it the same way he ends the prayer in chapter 3. It's with this idea of fullness and it's related to the body of Christ, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's related to the church. So we're holding that in mind, and now we're holding 2, 11 through 22 in our minds. How does that section end? Well, it ends with the description of the church as a building, but a specific building. Do you remember? It's a temple. Look at, at chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into what? A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, I'm going to let our friend S.M. Bell take it from here, okay? Because he said it better than I could summarize it. Paul's request then is that God would fill his new creation temple, the new covenant church, with his glorious presence through the Spirit. God's glory had filled the Mosaic tabernacle after it was constructed, as well as Solomon's temple. Early in Ezekiel's visions, he had seen the Lord's glory departing from the Solomonic temple, which had been profaned with idolatry before its desolation. But then he saw and described a glorious new creation temple. This is Ezekiel chapter 43. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is the background to the divine filling and fullness in Ephesians 3.19 and leads directly to Paul's hymn in verses 20 through 21 where he ascribes to God glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations forever and ever. In verse 19, Paul is praying for the Lord to fill his inaugurated new creation temple, the church of which these Gentile Ephesians were a part with his glory in full measure. That blows my mind. That God has taken this image of the temple and now it's the church and he wants to fill us with the fullness of his presence. Paul shows us that we are to pray that we as God's gathered people would be filled with the presence of God so that we shine as his temple in a way that all of the temples of the old covenant could only point forward to. This is what we're asking for in this prayer. We're asking that we as God's people would be filled to the brim with the presence of God so that we might show forth his glory in this world. The unity of this church, of any church, strengthened by God's spirit, growing deeper in knowing God's love and being filled more and more with God's presence leads to God's glory in this world and in eternity. And this all flows into the doxology of verses 20 through 21, which we will call the foundation of Paul's prayer. 
the foundation of Paul's prayer. Paul indicates a couple of motivations for this prayer, and possibly we could say for all prayer, and one is the limitless power of God, and the other is the glory of God. Why do we pray? Because God's power is limitless and for his glory. We see in verse 20 that Paul is praying for all of these wonderful and seemingly impossible things because he believes and trusts that God is able to do way more than we could ever ask or think of. Remember, the only way that we're going to see the reality of what Christ has purchased for us is if we ask for it. If we long for the unity that Christ has purchased, we must pray. It is the seeming impossibility of this unity. Think about how impossible it seems for the church to be unified across all lines that might divide us. It's the seeming impossibility of that unity that drives us, like Paul, to our knees before God asking for what we could never accomplish on our own, but which God can do by his power at work in us. Maybe you've come to the end of a job interview process and they ask you how much you would like to be paid. (laughs) And so you come up with a number and you say it and they say, sure, we can do that very quickly, you know. And on your drive home, you're really thrilled about the job, but there's this voice in the back of your head that keeps saying, man, I should have asked for more money. (laughs) I wonder if we could feel the same way about our prayers. Could we maybe try asking more from God? Asking him to, to do things beyond all we could ever ask or imagine? Asking him to do things that were they to happen, he would be the only explanation for them? Asking him to strengthen us so that when it's all said and done, it's clear that he alone was the one that was working in us or in our church. Of course, that could sound selfish, couldn't it? Just like that thought of, maybe I should have asked for more money from my employer could sound a little selfish. Um, But that's not the case with prayer because that second foundation is, is the glory of God. Why are we asking for God to do more than we could ever ask or imagine? For his glory. That's why we're asking it so that his name would be seen as great. And of course, the more God is glorified, the more we are satisfied. satisfied. If our great desire as followers of Jesus is for God to be glorified, then when God is glorified, we're happy. That's what we long for more than anything else because of God's spirit within us. Notice though, where Paul says God is glorified. Do you see this in verse 21? To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So, first, God is glorified in the church, in the spirit indwelt people of God, in those in whom Christ dwells, in all of God's children who are growing ever deeper in their comprehension of God's love, in God's temple where God's presence is shining forth in all of its brilliance, in the people of God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation united in Christ and proclaiming his name to the world. This is where God is glorified, in the church. And this is what we're praying for, that the supernatural unity of the gospel would become a visible reality in the world. Why? so that God would be glorified in the church by the accomplishment of something that only he could do. Catch this, the church is not secondary. The church is not to the side. It's the place where God has chosen to dwell. 
It's where he's calling all people to come and to glorify him in the same way that the temple was central in Old Testament Judaism. The church is central as the place where God's glory comes. Not a building, but God's people. Unified together are calling people to come and worship God. Notice though, quickly as we close, God is glorified in Christ. Christ, who is the fulfillment of the imagery of the temple as well. God in Christ has shown us what the presence of God looks like on earth. God in Christ has fulfilled the longing that the temple represents, namely for God to be near. And God in Christ has fulfilled the sacrifices of the temple. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the one who through his blood has brought us near and made us his children as well as a kingdom of priests to our God. All the glory of the church as the temple is a reality because Jesus came on earth to tabernacle, to dwell among us and to give his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so even the glory that is in the church finds its ultimate source in Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. And so because of the gospel, God's people and God himself will receive glory how long? Forever and ever throughout all generations. It's this reality. It's this reality of God's glory seen in Christ and the hope of God's glory in the future kingdom that this humble meal helps us to remember. It's simple, but it speaks of world-changing, everlasting realities. The bread, through the bread and the cup, we are proclaiming what we've talked about. We're proclaiming the love of God for us displayed in the death of Jesus. And we're also announcing our hope, our hope that he's going to come again. He's going to take us to himself where we will continue to grow ever deeper in our understanding of his love and where we will glorify him together as the family of God. I want to invite you to reflect on God's word, to reflect on the sacrifice of Christ before we take the Lord's Supper together. Um, Then I'm going to pray, and uh, Jordan and Sarah are going to help me pass the, the bread and the cup. And as they pass, we'll probably sing our song together. But let's just take a moment of silence now to prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together. Father, in your kindness, would you use this meal to help us to know your love for us, to remind us of the the depth of the love of Christ that is beyond our knowledge. Lord, and as we each take the bread and the cup, the one bread, the one cup, would you remind us of the unity that we have in Christ, that we take this meal not as individuals, but as your church, as your people, as your family. Lord, may the unity that we express in taking this become a deeper and deeper reality each day in our lives. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.